and we are trying to explain in a yogic manner, in a technical yogic manner, some of the teachings given by Krishna, some of the brilliant teachings of Krishna. We are in the middle of chapter 4, where Krishna is giving more knowledge. The chapter is called the Yoga of Knowledge. And after Krishna defined a little bit about the nature of spiritual action, he actually has a series of strophes, a series of shlokas that, with which we ended last time, last week, in which actually Krishna quotes the characteristics of a yogi, the characteristics of an enlightened being. Many yogis from India meditate on this. They use these verses as meditation. They repeat them again and again because they are like the way I want to be. This is how I want to be. I want to be the way Krishna says that one should be. I want to be the way Krishna says an enlightened being is. Such as 18, he who in action sees in action and in action sees action is wise among men. He is in yoga, he is a yogi, he has accomplished all action. 19, he whose understanding, he whose every, every undertaking is free from desire and the incentive thereof, whose action is burned up in the fire of knowledge, him the knowers of reality call wise. And 20, having cast off attachment to the fruit of action, ever contented, depending on nothing, even though fully engaged in action, he does not act at all. And finally, 21, expecting nothing, his heart and mind disciplined, having relinquished all possessions, performing action by the body alone, he incurs no sin. All these we explained in the last session of our, in the last satsang, and all these yogis from India would repeat it like a mantra, like when they think about, I am in a dilemma, what shall we do, what shall I do, then he says, having cast off attachment to the fruit of action, ever contented, depending on nothing, even though fully engaged in action, he does not act at all. That's what Lord Krishna said, and that, these are used as a model, it's the modeling of a spiritual being, is how a spiritual being is. And tonight we continue with this series in which actually Krishna goes back to a formidable theme, which for those of you who were here in the springtime when I commented chapter 3, was an amazing revelation. He turns back to the story about the sacrifice that the only divine act, the only act which is according to Dharma, is the right action that is what can be called sacrifice. A little bit and we get there. Here what he has to say in the strophe, in the verse at number 22. Satisfied whatever comes unasked, beyond or free from the pairs of opposites, free from envy, balanced in success and failure, even acting is not bound. That's just another way of defining the state of detachment. That's the fifth in a row, and it defines again and again. Krishna says many times the same thing. 
like some of these things have been said, but in other words, he speaks about the same thing, but he wants to make himself so very clear. And when he said in the shloka number 21, expecting nothing, his heart and mind disciplined, having relinquished all possessions, and so on. Here in 22, he says, satisfied with whatever comes unasked. But you know, sometimes unasked, you get a disease, you get a test, you get trouble, you can be tested by God. And that comes unasked. For example, when Job lost his family and wealth in the Bible, he did not ask for it, it came unasked. So basically here we say, when things happen by themselves, like I didn't ask for it directly or indirectly, and yet it happens. Please be aware that this is a meditation which goes very, very deep. Many people say, I haven't asked for something. And it's not true. It's not true because people are asking for things unconsciously and indirectly. And that's why you have to look at it at a much deeper level. For example, generally in Christianity, and I'm not going to go into different sub-denominations of Christianity, because there are major differences. Here is where the differences become obvious, but generally people don't look at it from the standpoint of the laws of the mind. In Christianity, in all the denominations, Jesus says in the Bible, whoever wants to do what I did or whoever wants to come after me, whoever wants to be free, whoever wants salvation, he should follow in my footsteps. Jesus says, if you want to reach what I'm talking about, you should take your cross and follow me. Basically, Jesus says, I sacrificed myself for the world, and so should you. If you are a disciple of mine, you should sacrifice yourself for the world. It does not work that I am a spiritualist that sacrifices himself for the world, and you are a spiritualist who doesn't give a shit about the world. It doesn't work that way. You have to be my spiritual son. You have to be in my footsteps. And in my footsteps it means you have to be forgiving. You have to be compassionate. In the Zen Buddhism, the forgiveness and other things, they are not there. The Zen Buddhists are Manipura, Ajna type of combination. And for them, forgiveness and loving your enemy or your neighbor it's not part of the equation. They do have the Buddhist concept of loving-kindness and compassion, but as most of you know from yoga already, the compassion and the loving-kindness does not come from the heart chakra. It comes from Ajna chakra. It's a, it is still compassion and loving-kindness, but it is not done with this feeling of emotion and tears and dissolving mercy and all these components to it. Basically, what I'm trying to say here is that, of course, every religion, every spirituality, 
every spiritual master leaves a lineage and creates disciples according to their patterns. That means not everybody in spirituality has a big Anahata Chakra. Although Anahata Chakra is formidable, it's fantastic from the standpoint of spirituality. And if you are a spiritual person with a big Anahata Chakra, it's a great benefit. I spoke in some other opportunity, in some other satsang, and in some other evening meetings, in some other questions and answer sessions, I spoke widely about this subject because you can be a spiritualist who goes with Anahata, through Anahata, who includes a lot of Anahata in their cocktail, in their composition, and you can be a spiritualist which has almost zero Anahata. For example, Zen Buddhists, or some of the Tibetan Buddhists, or generally in Asia, among the Asian spiritualists, where Anahata is not very popular, because they are very much Manipura typologies of people, then Anahata is not necessarily there. And there is an upside and a downside. If you are a spiritual person and you do not have a good Anahata, you are going to be very tough on yourself like a perfectionist, like a very demanding person, which can make your spiritual endeavor way more difficult. That's why Rumi says, many people have looked for you, God, in this garden, and they died without finding you, but this pain is not for those who come as lovers. Those who do bhakti yoga and they love God, they shall not have that pain. When you seek God, spirituality can be painful. Look at people who have been fasting, doing mortification, doing formidable acts of tapasya, so that their spiritual practice, at least from an outsider for an outsider, can be painful. Like you have to slap your own wrist all day long. And when you reach 70 years old and you have done 70 years of life in that spirituality, you are extremely tough and extremely merciless, including with yourself. Like you don't give yourself quarter, you don't give yourself any mercy, that you don't cut yourself any slack, you just go perfectly on it. While, for example, a spiritualist like Ramakrishna, who has a ton of Anahata Chakra, he is much more free. He is like a child that plays. And it doesn't matter if he is perfect or not, because he loves God and he has a totally different relationship with the infinite. Saint John, one of the Saint Johns, not the Apostle of Christ, but the later Saint John, Kalimakis is called the, the latter man, Saint John Kalimakis even says, one of the fathers of the desert, he says, I no longer fear God, because now I love God. In Christianity, the decent citizen, the person who listens to the word of God, was called a God-fearing person. Because if you fear God, you are not going to get drunk, you are not going to rape, you are not going to kill, because you are afraid of the anger of God, of the right judgment of God. So, like this fear, is a very good fear, because it makes you be a decent person, because then you are moral and ethical. 
But St. John Kalimaki says, I have raised even above that. I no longer feel fear of God. Not because I'm reckless and I'm saying, ah, God, God is a nobody. What can God do? No, not because he became an anarchist or an ignorant. Although he's fully aware of the presence of the divine consciousness, he says, now I'm not afraid of God because I love God. And you cannot be afraid of something which you love and something which loves you. Therefore, what I'm trying to say here is, spirituality can be done through many chakras and there is not just one single recipe. In the West, due to the dominance of Christianity, they make you believe that this thing with loving God, which is in Judaism as well, a bit more manipuristic in Judaism than in Christianity, which exists in Islam as well, that you have to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, which is true. But this is not the only way to reach the infinite. Such a commandment does not exist in Japan. And it doesn't mean that the Japanese spiritualists were handicapped, or that they were not able to reach the infinite. They simply used a different composition, a different blend of chakras and emotions and spiritual tools to reach the same thing. And that's why I say, satisfied Krishna, by quoting Krishna, satisfied with whatever comes unasked. Sometimes you are just spiritually tested. I remember when I learned chiropractic, my teacher in chiropractic was a venerable monk, very, very, very spiritual, a formidable exorcist, a man with a huge manipura at the same time, one of the best healers I have seen in my life, a miracle healer. And at some point, for example, I was living with him. He allowed me at some times to sleep in the same room with him, and I was sharing his life day in and day out, and at some point he gets some, I don't know, he gets a, a pain in his teeth, or one of his teeth falls off, no, he was 85 years old, and then he says, ah, now I also got this on top of everything, because being old, anyhow, you don't feel like when you are 20, your shoulders are heavier, and they are the, the heaviness and the issues of old age, and he was a healthy old man, but still old age presses hard on your shoulders. And on top of everything, he says, now I got this in my teeth or something. And then realizing that he's complaining, his next sentence was, thank God for it. Like, thank to God because I got a pain in my teeth. It's like, if God has given it, who am I to say, please don't give it to me? when the Divine Consciousness knows best what's best for me. Therefore, here is exactly what Krishna says, satisfied with whatever comes unasked. When it comes unasked, it can be either a manifestation of your karma, but here Krishna is very subtle, because when there is a manifestation of your karma, you are kind of asking for it. You are not asking for it directly, but you are asking for it indirectly. Such as, for example, you say, like, you have a violent physical karma. And then you buy yourself a big, strong motorcycle. This means, maybe most of you will disagree with me, 
But to me, this means that you are asking for it. You do bungee jumping, you are asking for trouble. You do skydiving, you are asking for trouble. I know that some people have too much fire. Usually the fire people do this kind of stuff. And you simply can't stop from doing it. Because if you stop from doing it, it feels like you are going to die. And life has become without color and without juice and without fun. That's why these kind of people, they need to live in the fast lane. But that fast lane makes that the percentage of trouble is much bigger. You don't need to be a messiah or a seer. You just go to the police or to the direction of statistics and see what is the mortality among motorcycle drivers. The mortality among motorcycle drivers in every country of Europe and America, it surpasses tens of times the mortality of almost any other social group. Like motorcycle drivers die like flies. Therefore, if you ask to drive a motorcycle, you are asking for it. You don't want drive drive a Volvo. Volvos are unbreakable cars. If you are conservative and you don't want trouble, drive a Volvo, drive a Mercedes, drive the strongest, most, most safe and most secure car in the world. Even if you bump in a wall, you are not going to die. Ask for trouble, drive a motorbike. So if somebody says, I got an accident because I drove my motorbike, my opinion is that it didn't come unasked. It came asked. You asked for it. Your samskaras were fatally pushing you to do some dangerous sport or some dangerous action so that you can satisfy your negative physical karma, your violent physical karma. In a similar way, when I started, I started speaking about this anahata in Christianity generally. Again, it's, it's different from Christian denomination to Christian denomination. Very different. But generally, the message is clear. If you want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, you should take a cross on your shoulder and walk and do what Jesus did. Be a sort of a sacrificial lamb and then people wonder especially in the countries where Christianity is more strong why does it happen it happens because people ask for it every Sunday in church people pray for it every day people pray to be sacrificial lambs to be selfless to be poor to give themselves for the humanity and then people are wondering look at it where do you have more prosperity from this standpoint like who is poor and being a sort of giving everything in Spain in Italy in Greece generally the areas in Europe where Christianity is more fanatic or more hot or in England the English are living by a so-called Christian theology, but it's a modified Christian theology, which comes from Calvin, from the Calvinists and the Puritanists and others, and that says completely something else. I do not have time now to make this analysis, but remember Italians 
implicitly, automatically, blindly, unconsciously ask for something and British ask for something else. They both of them say that they are Christian, but they are differently Christian. So do the Muslims, so do the Jews. Everybody is consciously or semi-consciously or unconsciously asking for something which is embedded in their religion. When you go to Malaysia, for example, and you see the Muslims side by side with the Chinese, the two communities are very different in terms of money, morality, and other things. Many, many things are different because in the moment when you embrace a certain philosophy, a certain religion, a certain theology, that comes embedded in it already with some values, such as money is the eye of the devil. If you come from a religion where money is the eye of the devil, you will never get rich except if you are a sinner and do ugly things. You become a pimp, you become a seller of drugs, you become a crook, and then you get rich, but sinner, because the people who are poor are the saints. That's what your subconscious mind is filled up with. The Chinese, for example, don't have this absurd belief that you have to be poor to be saintly in the eyes of God, that you have to be deprived. The Chinese don't believe at all in this. Even great Taoist masters are charging truckloads of money and they couldn't care less. Even Tibetan masters, lamas sometimes, they ask for preposterous amounts of money and they couldn't care less. For them that's not anti-spiritual. That's anti-spiritual in Christianity, where poverty is preached like a virtue. Therefore, this statement is extremely deep. Because when you say, satisfied with whatever comes unasked, first of all you have to ask yourself, what am I asking for? What really is unasked? And what is asked? Because I can ask for things because I dressed myself in a flashy way. I can ask for things because I have bought myself a motorcycle. I can ask some for something because I pray in a certain way. And people never question this. They say, I pray in, which my, in the way in which my parents and grandparents have prayed. What if the way in which your parents and grandparents have prayed is stupid? You could improve it. You could be the milestone, the landmark where somebody makes a step forward. Nothing is hammered and nailed forever, as the history of humanity demonstrates it. That's why you have to use your intelligence and see what am I asking for. People are asking for. Statistics show that in the day where women are fertile, they dress in red and they wear shorter skirts to show their feminine forms. Because a woman who is fertile unconsciously wants to be fertilized by a man. Either she acknowledges it or not, there is research which demonstrates a woman who is fertile would always dress up more provocatively, asking for it, basically. 
Therefore, this statement has to be taken at a very deep level, satisfied with whatever comes unasked. I did not dress myself provocatively. I did not ride a motorbike. I did not pray to be poor but clean, poor but pure. I did not, and yet this has happened. Then, that is not coming from my karma and from my samskaras. That's something which comes from the universe as an incentive for me to grow up. It is God helping me in my evolution. It's the need of my spirit to go forward. And thus, when this is the case, then you can say, that's the characteristic of a wise man or woman, says Krishna. Satisfied with whatever comes unasked. It's a definition of detachment. When you are detached, there are some things which come unasked. Very seldom, but they are satisfied. Either those things are unpleasant, challenging, provocative, painful, or something, they have come unasked. I consciously or semi-consciously never asked for this. It nevertheless came. That means there is a lesson for me to learn in this. That's why this is Dharma. Now this is the will of God. This is what I have to do. And therefore, this, Krishna says, satisfied with whatever comes unasked. Try to make a sense of it in your lives and to see which things come asked and which of the things until now have come unasked. Remember that it's very difficult for people to be satisfied when job is tested by the devil in collusion with God and he loses his wealth, he loses his family, he loses his health, Job still manages to be, metaphysically speaking, satisfied. He says, God has given, God has taken, praise be to God. Like, what I had was a loan anyway from the universe. God has given, and then God has decided to take it back. All glory be to God. God knows what's best. This surrender, this great wisdom, is a detachment from the crown chakra, and therefore Krishna puts it here first, satisfied with whatever comes unasked, free from the pairs of opposites. This is a great thing, this is the essence in Buddhism, that you should always choose the middle path, not the opposites, not like Krishna says it at some other point later in the text, yoga is not reached by he who sleeps too much, nor by he who sleeps too little. Not by he who works too much, nor by him who works too little. Because those extremes, they can never hit Sushumna Nadi. In terms of energy, the yin and the yang are not the answer. The answer is Tao, which is beyond the yin and the yang, resulting from the perfect balance and harmony of the yin and the yang. Therefore, when you go in too much yin, when you go in too much yang, when you go too much in idanadi, when you go too much in pingalanadi, there is no fulfillment beyond the pairs of opposites. Those of you who did or finished the first level of yoga with agama, you have those tables 
from macrobiotics and Eastern philosophy about what is yin and what is yang, such as heat, cold, light, darkness, acid, alkaline, and so on and so forth. Tens, maybe hundreds of rows of polarities. Being beyond those. That's what Krishna says. If you have developed detachment, then you have some arousing of Sahasrara, the crown chakra. If you have some arousing of Sahasrara, you are not in Ida, not in Pingala. You are in Sushumna, because only Sushumna reaches to the top of the head and to Sahasrara. And therefore, Krishna says, that's a sign by which you verify yourself. If you still fall into a lot of opposites, like this person I love, this person I hate, you are not in Sahasrara. That's not Sahasrara. In Sahasrara there is not love or hate. There is something which is the middle path, which is neither love nor hate, which we define as the love of God. But the love of God, although eternal and perfect, can be very trying. God loves everybody, including the people who died in tsunami and in torture during wars, and so many things have happened in this universe, and God loves them all. Therefore, the love of God is a very detached love, which the human beings don't understand, and the human beings rebel against it. Because the purpose is to actually develop your spirit, to evolve. You have to be goaded into nirvana. You have to be pushed to your enlightenment. And when you are lazy and reluctant, and you are lying on the job, then somebody has to kick you in the butt hard. That's the function of Kali. That's the function of Mother Nature, to push you forward into your evolution. And sometimes it's not nice. Sometimes it's not pleasant. The love of God is a rough love. It's a love which contains spanking as well. God is not politically correct, like the parenting of the 20th century. God gives you spanking also sometimes. There is a soft, a kid glove, and there is a rough hand as well. And sometimes you get one, and sometimes you get the other, because there is no other way. That is why, remember the second condition. So first, content with what comes to him without effort, unasked, free from the pairs of opposites, like staying beyond. We could make a huge commentary here, but try to think about it. Which are the pairs of opposites? Likes and dislikes. It's almost non-human. Like many of you would say, if I have to give up what I like, and what I dislike, then probably I don't want to go to Nirvana. Like, as much as my spiritual aspiration is, this seems to be a price too big to pay. People would say, let me stay in samsara for another ten lifetimes and dilly-dally. I don't feel I am prepared to let go. It's like superhuman. It's inhuman. It's too much the price to be like Buddha, to be like this. It's too much. I don't know if I'm prepared. It's almost cruel. It's almost terrible. Bhairava, one of the most spiritual names of Shiva in India, means the frightful one, the terrible one. 
because God has an aspect which for the limited attached human being is frightful. People when they saw God in the Old Testament or other places, they threw themselves to the ground in fear, in awe, like it's too much. Even Arjuna in the last but one chapter of this text, Krishna puts him in Samadhi. And Arjuna, after he tastes it a little bit, he simply says, stop it because I'm losing my mind. Somebody was in Samadhi and asked for it to stop? Yes, even a disciple of Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna touched him and put him in Samadhi. And three days later, he went to Ramakrishna and he said, stop it, I'm losing my mind. And Ramakrishna stopped it. And 20 years later, when Ramakrishna was already dead, this guy said, what an idiot I have been. You know, that thing was beyond life and death. And it was something incredible. And I was such a weakling that I asked Ramakrishna to stop my state of samadhi. What a jerk, what an idiot. I lost the opportunity of a thousand lifetimes just because, like, people, even when confronted with states of superconsciousness, they can simply feel that they are dissolving, breaking apart, and it's like they are about to jump in the jaws of a crocodile or something. No, it's like a terrible thing. That's why when you start seeing the values, you know, to go beyond the pairs of opposites, who is ready to go beyond the pairs of opposites? Most people would say, oh, give me another couple of years, give me another couple of lifetimes, because I want to dilly-dally, I want to still be human and play with these things. The spiritual reality is for the people who are prepared for something formidable, awesome, terrible. Only those people have the soul of a hero and they are ready to look in the eyes of the infinite. Because when you look in the eyes of the infinite, you feel that you disappear. You feel that you die. You feel that you become annihilated into a void. And for the mind, that's the greatest fear. And that's why spirituality, it's a very heroic thing. You have to go to the point where you are ready to die in meditation. You have to go to the point, like Rumi says, die, 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 die in this love. But that's not a coincidence, it's exactly the same thing. So satisfied with whatever comes unasked, beyond the pairs of opposites. Three, free from envy. See, it's mentioned specially, because envy is something which eats people up a lot. People are consumed by envy under various forms. Either it's jealousy or it's envy for material things or for reputation or for status. Krishna says you have to be beyond the opposites. You have to be satisfied with whatever comes unasked for. You have to be free of envy. Balanced and success and failure. Like it's not important if you succeed or fail. That's a very materialistic way of judging. You are going to die anyway, and you are going to go naked into your death. Who cares if in your life you build the Eiffel Tower, or you gathered a hundred million dollars, or you became a very famous scientist or humanist or something? When you die, you die. You go naked. You can't take anything with you. Therefore, all these are just vanities. 
They are just empty vanities. And that's why you have to be able to go, to be balanced in success and failure. Spiritualists don't ask if they succeed or they fail. For many people, the life of spiritual people is a failure. For example, many of my friends and relatives who are very materialistic people, they always nourish the idea that spiritual practitioners are complete losers. Like people who go in a monastery to become a monk or a nun, they are just chicken who cannot confront life, who cannot make a business, who cannot raise children, who cannot get academic distinction, total losers who simply go in a monastery where they pretend that they bubble some sacred texts and they get food and house for free and they are eminently just a bunch of parasites. It's all a hypocrisy. Those are people who hide from the world. It's also true that in many monasteries and ashrams you find people who hide from the world. When you are in active spirituality, a good spiritual teacher, a good spiritual guide, a good guru will not let you run away from the world, will educate you in such a way, kicking you out of the nest sooner or later, so that you go and confront the world. Spirituality is not running away from the world. I had pupils who were doing 10 hours of yoga per day and they could not put two words together in public relations. And I simply gave them a tapas. You, your karma yoga is to go and work in the registration office. And they hated every minute of it. But they had to go and work in the registration office of Agama and speak with people every day for hours and smile and behave politely and be courteous and learn normal human relationships because those people were tending to become losers. They were doing good spiritual practice, but from the standpoint of the world, they were unable. That's not what a spiritual person is supposed to be. A handicapped person who runs away from the world and cannot do the things of the world. Because what is success for one person is in success for another person. For Jesus, the fact that he got crucified and he went through it was a success. For the Romans, the fact that Jesus got caught and nailed to a cross was just another gladiator. Like they crucified Spartacus and 3,000 gladiators, they crucified also Jesus. He was just another criminal in Judea who got crucified. What's the big deal? He was a loser for them. He got crucified, he died, he lost. He was out of the game. We are still here, Jesus is out of the game. Success and failure are extremely relative words and that's why Krishna, and this is the philosophy of Buddhism as well, says you have to be balanced in success and failure. You have to follow the middle path. There is no success or failure. And that, that's when Krishna says, satisfied with whatever comes on us, beyond the pairs of opposites, free from envy, balanced in success and failure, even acting, he is not bound. It's the same and the same thing. He says, such a person, those are all symptoms of detachment. That's why read again these sutras, these shlokas from Bhagavad Gita, 
whenever you want to be detached. These are all of them definitions, definitory aspect, how is a detached person. This is how a detached person is. Satisfied with whatever comes on us, beyond the pairs of opposites, free from envy, balanced in success and failure, and then we can go back to the other ones. Expecting nothing, his heart and mind disciplined, having relinquished all possessions, preferring actions by the body alone, and I could go further, but would repeat endlessly that list. Then, such a person, even acting, is not bound by karma. Then, you do not produce karma with your actions. The stakes are very high. Krishna raises the bar very high. It's not easy. And of course, it's not black and white. If you are 50% detached, you have 50% of the karma. It's proportional. When you are 100% detached, then you have 100% no karma. Therefore, there are degrees, nothing is black and white in this universe. There are many, many shades of gray. And that is why, take it exactly in the same way here. And in, the, in 23, it's the last of the description shlokas, as continuation of those four or five until now. And he again says the same thing, but in other words, yet again. He who is freed from attachment, that's of course detachment, but it had to be said, freed from attachment, liberated, liberated, again, free, but free in a greater context, whose mind is established in wisdom, knowledge, that means he who is of deep knowledge, like knowing what you do. Do you know what you do? That's what Jesus asked in the Gospel of Thomas, one man who is plowing his land. He says, do you know what you do? Because he says, if you don't know what you do, you are a sinner. No, so therefore, established in knowledge, who acts for the sake of sacrifice, that is where he introduces the next concept. His action is entirely dissolved. So he makes a beautiful connection. He continues half of the verse with those beautiful qualities, saying, freed from attachment, liberated, mind established in knowledge, in wisdom, in high knowledge. And then he shifts towards the next topic. He says, who acts for the sake of yagya, of yagya, yajna in Sanskrit pronounced yagya, like ajna chakra is pronounced agya chakra. Yagya, Yajna, is the, literally speaking, in India, in the Brahminic culture where this came from, is the fire sacrifice. But as I explained when I commented on chapter 3, and I will have to refresh for a few minutes a few of those concepts, that's just a name, it does not refer literally to the act of sacrifice. Although the Brahmins from India, and not only them, the Zoroastrians, the Pharisees and other cultures, they had constant sacrifices, fire ceremonies, in which you throw things in fire and you sacrifice to the fire. That's just an instrument, an external instrument, that's just a tool and it's an analogy, it's an analogous way of doing things so that your subconscious mind should get the message. It's a sort of oblique way, it's a, it's a sort of 
ritual way for accomplishing something which is internal. The external thing is only a prop. I'm getting back to that. But sacrifice, the word sacrifice, is called here yagya, but it is translated by yogis like Shivananda and others as sacrifice, because it does not mean literally the fire ceremonies from widespread in India. It means much more as Krishna is going to give an amazing list in the following shlokas, enlarging your understanding of what is here at stake. Therefore, Krishna continues speaking about this perfect yogi, this ideal yogi, content with what comes with him, unasked and all that, he's not bound, and he who is freed from attachment, liberated with mind, is established in knowledge. And now comes a further thing which brings us to a special category, who acts for the sake of sacrifice, his action is entirely dissolved acting for the sake of sacrifice. In the beginning of chapter 4, Krishna was reminding this, which he commented also, he brought forth in chapter number 3, and I have commented in one evening, in actually two of the discourses, I have commented extensively on those. Try to find those discourses, they usually go on internet, and try to find them and find those lectures because there there is a wealth of understanding spiritually and here I'm opening that door even further I were going deeper Krishna says in the beginning of chapter 4 there does exist a special action which is automatically spiritual and consecrated and that one is automatically dharma. That is the right action. And the right action, says Krishna, is sacrifice. Like, sacrifice is every major religion, rite, ritual, or procedure from any major bona fide religion which exists on the surface of this act, Either that you give a sacrificial lamp to a rabbi, or you perform the mass, the Christian mass, or you do the yagya, it's all of it a sacrifice. A sacrifice meaning that the human being has to give something to the higher levels of consciousness. There, the, as, let's put it in a very simplified Qigong way, your chi needs to circulate all the time. If your Svadhisthana chakra chi stays in your Svadhisthana chakra, it will eventually get rotten and stale. Your Svadhisthana chakra chi must go in your Vishuddha and Ajna, and other chi from the nature should come and replenish it, but your energy should be constantly flowing like a river. Then it stays fresh. Exactly the same principle is applied in the greater metaphysical picture. The human being works always on a give and receive basis. You cannot even give a blessing or receive a blessing if before that you did not give something. So that your subconscious mind opens up and says, I have given now I can receive something. 
What have I given? I have given praise to God. I say, O Lord, how holy and big you are. This simple act, which for a skeptical person is like kissing ass, is actually a necessary thing in spirituality because in the moment when I praised God, I have the feeling that I made friends with God and God is more auspicious and more propitious to me because I gave Him praise. Which is of course total nonsense because the cosmic consciousness doesn't need your blame and doesn't need your praise. The cosmic consciousness is like an undifferentiated ocean of consciousness which our mind cannot understand anyway. But we cannot believe. When Peter believed that he could walk on water, he walked on water and in the moment when he doubted, he drowned, he sunk into the water. And Jesus came and pulled him by the collar and he said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That means if you believe, it happens. If you believe that fire burns you, it burns you. If you believe that fire doesn't burn you, it doesn't. Therefore, if I believe I am not worthy, then I am not. It is my own mind which judges me. It's my conscious mind which takes the decisions. And the conscious mind is very stupid, very poor, very incomplete often, very unwise. And that is why I need to make something and then I say, I did five hours of pranayama, now God can give me love. And then my subconscious mind believes in this and I do it. Some people say, so Swami, you actually don't need to do anything. Even the spiritual practice is bollocks. Because you could get from God everything without doing anything. You just have a stupid belief that you have to do something to get something. Yes, but that belief is very, very difficult to eradicate. And even great saints practice that belief because the human mind understands give and receive. It's a bargain. It's a sort of bartering philosophy which the mind has. You eat something, you got energy from, you got calories from that food. You receive you give and all that thing and that's why the sacrifice is embedded in the human consciousness there is no spirituality on this planet religious or not which does not contain under one form or another sacrifice sacrifice is something which can be witchcraft and magic and for most people that's what it is or it can be a sort of a white magic a sort of a divine magic when it addresses to god krishna himself later in the text of bhagavad gita makes it very clear everybody sacrifices unconsciously or consciously but people sacrifice to different things. For example, very primitive cultures, they sacrifice to the spirits of the dead, like to the ancestors. There are whole cultures, especially shamanic and animic cultures, which are the most primitive ladders of religion, 
which are sacrificing to the ancestors. If the ancestors are happy, then you get good crops, no meteorological disasters, no, no, everything is okay because the ancestors, which are up there in heaven, they bless you. But let's be a little bit honest. The ancestors, look at the ancestors of you, your family, your friends and all your acquaintances. All the people that you know who have passed away already until today and they have become ancestors. Let's be honest, most of them are very ordinary people. Some of them are jerks. So what do, how high are these ancestors? These ancestors are as high spiritually as me and you. They just are located now in the astral world, and because they are located in the astral world, they have a much wider vision, like they can see more, like I cannot see my previous lives, but my ancestors know who I was in the previous lives, and they are waiting for me to finish this life, to go back meet with them. They have a bigger knowledge, and they have some paranormal abilities, like they don't sleep ever, because you don't need to sleep in the astral world, because you don't have a physical body that needs to regenerate its neural cells and other things. But they are therefore at a better place, and they have some abilities which I don't have. They're not very much higher spiritually, just because they passed away. Therefore, worshipping the ancestors, it's a pretty dark form of religion. You are worshipping people who are pretty much ordinary. They are just placed in a better position. They got some power. And this that's why Krishna says, worshipping the ancestors and therefore sacrificing to the ancestors, because that's what we are talking about, that you give rice, you give candlelight, you give incense sticks, which are all of them prana, and you donate that energy to the ancestors, and you say, we give you rice, you give us good crops, health, peace, no tornadoes, and stuff like that. This is magic. This is witchcraft and magic. You are just making a bargain with some disincarnated spirits that are providing you a service, but not for free. If you do not sacrifice to the ancestors, the ancestors get angry and they give you the finger. They are not going to do anything for you because you turn a cold shoulder onto them. And thus, this is the lowest form of worship. Then some people say the ancestors are not enough. We need something, somebody stronger than that. So then people worship what the ancient Greeks called Titans. What in India is called Asuras. And we could call them, the usual name in English in metaphysical studies, is demonic entities. Demonic entities does not necessarily mean something evil. It means something very powerful, which, some, which is very moody and egoistic, and which sometimes gives you gold, and sometimes gives you death. It's something very slippery like a Colombian drug lord. 
He can give you a hundred thousand dollars like this. He can love you and drink with you and you are his best friend. He loves his children and his wife and his brother and sister. And he is of enormous generosity. And then when somebody pisses him off, he takes out the machine gun and wipes them out. If you insult his honor, he sends the goons to come and kill you or beat the shit out of you. That's a demonic temperament. Somebody who can do great good and great evil. In the movie The Godfather, Don Corleone, the Godfather, is a typical example of somebody who is bigger than nature. Like Don Corleone is not the regular person. He is way stronger than the regular person. He has money, goons, shamelessness, boldness. He can push the envelope way further than a regular person can do. Don Corleone is heading towards becoming an Asura, a demonic entity, which is very powerful, very efficient, very manipuristic, but not necessarily good or bad. 50% good, 50% bad. For example, in the Greek mythology, I remind this again and again, so you understand, because usually the name demon is used for something very evil. In the Greek mythology, the person who brought the fire to human beings, thus pushing humanity in the next level of development, was Prometheus. And Prometheus was a titan, not a god. Prometheus was a drug lord. He simply had a mood that he wanted to give a gift to the stupid human beings. And he gave. And he paid a horrendous karma for it. But he did it anyway. Prometheus was not a god. Prometheus was a demonic entity, which proves that demonic entities sometimes can do you great services. According to the initiates of today, demonic entities, for example, rule over the money. If you have stocks in the New York Stock Exchange, you have to be friends with the demons of the money, of the bonds and stocks. If you worship them, your stocks will increase. Warren Buffett didn't lose money even during the crush. A man whose wealth is based on stocks, stayed ahead of the market. How? Because that man is held by the demons of the stock exchange. The Asuras, the Titans, which are giving this incredible power, most of you cannot conceive what power a human being has when they sleep on 30 billion dollars. Gives you the power to do pretty much anything. Such a person can have you killed with no fuss. Any one of you can be killed by Warren Buffett if he really wishes so. It's a power and without any consequences for him and without any traceable connection ever. Like for Warren Buffett, you are like an ant from a certain standpoint. You don't mean much. These people are way, way stronger than the average Tom, Dick and Harry. Ah, that we all have a heart and we all are children of God. That's the New Age democratic babble. But the truth is that people are not equal at all. You are not equal to Krishna or to Jesus or to Prometheus or to Alexander the Great. People are very different. Even when they have equal rights, 
in society, in the nature, people can be very unequal. So then, if you go above the worship, the sacrifice to the ancestors, you go to the sacrifice to the Asuras. And those are the people who want power, politics, money, banking, military power, and all those, they all come from those directions. Above the Asuras are the Suras. Asuras and Suras, the arch enemy of the Suras. The Suras are also called in Sanskrit the Devas. And the Devas are the gods of light, the Sattvic gods. And these are like the gods of Mount Olympus, who was fighting with the Titans all the time. Zeus and the gods from Mount Olympus, who were not completely nice people, but they were more sattvic, more wise, more clean, more spiritual. They were like 95% good compared to the Asuras, which were 50% good. So the Devas, although not perfect, they are definitely higher. And then you can sacrifice to the Devas. And then Krishna comes very importantly, and that's what concerns us in yoga, with the fourth level of the sacrifice, which is to God himself. There is something which is beyond the ancestors, beyond the asuras, beyond the devas, and that is the cosmic one consciousness, the divine. And Krishna says, why bother? sacrifice to all those which are closer to you and more easy to interact with and they give you faster results. It's so much more comfortable. But what are they compared to the top of the pyramid of the universe, compared to the one? Why not sacrifice directly to the one? Offer to the one. The one rules over the whole pyramid of the universe. Although it's further, more difficult to conceive and to understand, more difficult to connect with, more demanding perhaps, nevertheless that's where you get the supreme spirituality. And that's why, that's the meaning of sacrifice. Sacrifice is the same. Either you sacrifice to God, or you sacrifice to the ancestors. Only that the target is different, and the deal is different. <clears throat> For example, when you sacrifice to the ancestors, the ancestors are people like you and I. <clears throat> and therefore the ancestors want food, wine, all the normal shit which the human beings want. They want prana. They want to be fed with energy. But for example, the higher you go, the higher spirits of the universe, they need less and less of that, because they are not dependent. That is why in some cultures, they have sacrifices which are with blood. And spiritualists, which were very sattvic, they revolted against it and they said, if you do a sacrifice which involves blood, it's not for God, and most probably it's not even for the gods, for the devas. When you use blood, it can highest go to the asuras. It's for the ancestors or for the titans. 
not for the gods, the devas, and not for one god. Because the gods and God are disgusted by blood. They, it's too low. It's something very inferior. <coughs> it's something very cruel. The Tibetan yogis have a dictum which says to give to a god the flesh of an animal as a sacrifice, like people come and put on the altar, flesh. The Tibetans were pretty cruel. Not all of them were nice, sattvic Buddhists. And in the Buddhist world, this is one of the most flabbergasting things, that they keep speaking about compassion and loving kindness, and people keep animal, kill animals and eat them. Ferociously, fervently. You would expect that somebody who is totally Buddhist should be a vegetarian. That's the minimum thing you can do <clears throat> to express your compassion and loving kindness to all the sentient beings. But no. Why? Because of course Buddhism is as corrupt as Judaism, Christianity, Islam. In, in all of them you have people who do horrible things, selfish things, twisted things, skewed things, finding all sorts of excuses from from inquisition to crusades and from money laundering to you name it, terrorism or whatever, people will always find a religious excuse for it, which doesn't make it right, it just makes it a pathetic way of excusing the human ways. And that's why, the, coming back to the Tibetans, they say to cut an animal, to kill an animal, and to give its flesh as a sacrifice to a god, hoping like an idiot that the god is going to be pleased. Like in the Roman Empire, read any book from the Roman Empire, and rich Roman citizens, they said, oh, if this will happen, I will sacrifice ten bulls to Jupiter. The question is, does Jupiter really want ten bulls to be killed, ten oxen, ten animals to be killed. Why is Jupiter so bloodthirsty? If Jupiter is actually receiving such sacrifices, it actually means that Jupiter is not so clean. He accepts animals to be, not only in a cruel way, but in a whimsical way, those animals to be killed for him. Jupiter accepts blood price, blood energy, and therefore Jupiter is not so clean. But somebody who is more perceptive and clairvoyant would say, so therefore it means that those bulls and all that blood doesn't go to Jupiter. People do kill the ox, ox and the bulls but they can't see where the energy goes because Jupiter is not interested in the bulls and that means a titan takes over that energy. They pray to Jupiter but they actually pray to an Asura because Jupiter is sattvic and he would not take that. He would say, God behave, take this disgusting thing away from here. The Tibetan gurus have been very clear about this and they say to cut an animal, to slaughter an animal and to give its flesh as sacrifice to a god is like you would give to a mother the flesh of her own child. The gods are at the level of the causal world 
and for them all this, all this, is their children, is their creation. We are in a world created and sustained by the Devas. The Devas have a somewhat spiritual understanding, although they are not perfect, although they are not completely liberated, and although they still have some features of character which are a bit egocentric at times, the Devas are nevertheless quite spiritual, spirits of light. And therefore the Tibetans are right. If you sacrifice to a Deva, you never sacrifice an animal. If you sacrifice an animal, you don't sacrifice to a Deva. For example, in Bengal, they sacrifice goats. All the great spirits have said, why to Kali? And all the spirits, they have said, I the Kali is a little bit demonic. All those sacrifices do not go to Kali. The Tibetan gurus have said, to slaughter a goat and give its flesh to Kali, it's like you would give to a woman the flesh of her own child to eat. Kali doesn't want goats. Therefore, those goats, all the prana, which is from those slaughter goats, goes at a much lower level than Kali herself. Or else, you can believe, but that's not the case, but you can believe, it's an alternative, that Kali is not holy. It's either or. No, both of them cannot be true at the same time. That is the reason for which the Qatars, a uh, lost form of Christianity, a form of derivative from Gnosticism, which were wiped out by the Catholic Church, they claimed that the God which was worshipped by the Jews and by the Catholic Church was a demonic entity, an eon. They even gave his name in the Gnostic Christian scriptures. You find the names because they said this Jehovah, if he receives blood and lambs and circumcision and things like this, he cannot be a clean God because it's a blood thing involved into it. There has to be something. And then they said Jesus came from the real God of light and the church has missed completely. And they simply declared that the Christian church was in a total error. That's why the Christian church hated them so much. Because the Qatars, the Albigensians, they were purists. They simply said you have to be pure and compassionate and all these games with the church is doing, it's because they are just sticking to some very low realities and they are on Manipura, power, manipulation and all that stuff. The church disliked them and they commiserated, they, they put together a whole crusade who instead of going to Jerusalem to, lib to liberate Jerusalem, they went to north of Spain and south of France and they wiped out the Qatars, murdering them en masse because they were denouncing the church for this. So in this way, again, I'm not saying that that's what all the Christian saints have said. It's a bit of an extreme view on it. But the Qatars, which today don't exist anymore and who are Puritanists in spirituality, they had this feeling. Therefore, the sacrifice means lots of things. And the sacrifice has to be 
adequate. For example, Jesus was telling to his contemporaries, he said, don't keep on going innocent lambs to the slaughter to give them to the temple, because he said the sacrifice which God is asking for comes from the mouth of Jesus. The sacrifice which God requires is a pure heart. Animals don't do any job. That's a much lower level. That's witchcraft. It's magic. What God wants is to take your heart out of your chest and put it in the fire and give it to Him. What's the fire? The fire is love. Surrender. So a loving heart, a heart that surrenders to God, is a form of sacrifice. That's why sacrifice does not always mean rituals. Rituals are done by incapable people who are not able to burn inside. Here is a sacrifice. Your sexual energy, which is ojas, coming from soma, and which is meant to procreate the species, you can give it back to God. You can burn your sexual energy in the crucible of your sexual function, and instead of exploding and ejaculating and procreating, you sublime it to tantric sex and you give it back to God. You bring it back in Sahasrara. Tantric sex is a form of sacrifice. You sacrifice your sexual energy and dematerialize it, sublime it and send it back where it came from. It's exactly like you would have a fire and you would put butter in the fire. That butter is your sperm, your menstrual secretions, only the fire doesn't need to be an actual external fire. It's the fire of your own sexuality, which makes your energy go in Manipura Chakra, and then like in Udhyana Banda, it just flushes up and flushes up and sublimes and sublimes and sublimes. Tantric lovemaking is a sacrifice. Devotion to God, love for God, is a sacrifice. And there exist tens of such forms of spiritual sacrifice, which are sattvic, divine, pure, and which are part of the spiritual practice of the centuries. That's what spiritual practitioners have done ever since. All the spiritual practice, including your yoga, is a sacrifice. It can be looked upon as a sacrifice. Because yoga is many things. For example, there is agitation in you. Constantly we scratch like monkeys. And then you go into Paschimottanasana and sacrifice your movements. All the restlessness. And you give it to God. You burn in the fire of yoga. Doing a simple asana, you are consecrating all that collateral agitation of hundreds of muscles, and you stop that energy from being wasted, and it becomes kundalini, and it goes up in you. To hold the breath is a sacrifice. Your breath goes hamsa, 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 in and out, and you hold it. Pranayama is a sacrifice. It can be seen as a sacrifice. Any form of spiritual practice, internal or external, 
as well as any form of religious ritual, is a form of sacrifice. It depends to see how pure, how efficient, to what does it address, like if it is higher or lower, like if it's witchcraft or magic or divine sacrifice, if it is done with the help of props, the body, the breath, rituals, external objects, but everything is a sacrifice. That's why the word sacrifice has many values, understand it properly. It also means, like, what did Jesus give to God so that he should do his messianic thing? He gave himself. That's a sacrifice, no? We say this person has sacrificed his life for those people. Sacrifice also means sacrifice like you die. Sacrificing a human being, which is, again, on the odious side of sacrifice, human sacrifices, animal sacrifices, and then there come the spiritual sacrifices, like Mahatma Gandhi sacrificed himself. He sacrificed his freedom, he sacrificed his comfort, he sacrificed his health, he sacrificed his family life, and eventually he sacrificed his life. This is sacrifice, but its sacrifice has double, triple meanings. Sacrifice means sacrifice like you sacrifice yourself, but it means also that you put something into this fire. If this fire is not fed, then nothing goes up the elevator shaft, and nothing can come down the elevator shaft. If water does not vaporize from the oceans of the world, water cannot come back as rain. Stop the vaporization of water, and you've stopped the rain. There is rain only if there is vaporization. The vaporization of the water is the sacrifice. The rain is the grace, the gift which comes as a result of it. Exactly in the same way, human beings live and exist by sacrifice, but people cannot see it. For example, the great initiate there, you can see that he indeed knew because he could adapt to the modern times. And I'm going to give you a late 20th century adaptation to it. But let's first go to an early 20th century adaptation of the immemorial spirituality. Gurdjieff, George Ivanovich Gurdjieff, he said, human beings are using cars. Cars, according to shamanism, are some demonic entities. Every car has a soul. Every bicycle has a soul. Every mechanical device has a soul, as the shamans know. You use them, and you are praying to the god of the automobile, please don't let my car break, because today I have some urgent errands to run. You always want your car to serve you. But what price do we pay for this? George Ivanovich Gurdjieff said, those are the, peep, the energy and the souls of the people who died in car crashes. People who die due to traffic accidents are the humanity's involuntary and unconscious sacrifice to the gods, the demons, the titans. Those are from the second category. They are titans, asuras, to the demons of the automobile. 
how many people would be able to see that? Even when I tell it to you, most of you can't see it and you think it's bad, it's a bit nuts, it's a bit too much. Gurdjieff could see it very clearly. He said, humanity cavorts with some titans, with some asuras, which are the automobiles. And then we had the airplanes, and then we had the computers. Computers, all the metaphysicians of the late 20th century know that computers and software, they represent some demonic entities which serve us, but we have to pay a price to them. For example, there are people who are totally sucked in the computers. People who develop addiction and their whole life is sacrificed on the altar of the computers and software. That's a sacrifice. And it's just like random say. It's like you take and you say, you, you, you. You are going to pay the price. The rest you can use the computers. That's the price. That's my price. Thus, there are many invisible things which people don't see. Think about internet. Think about mobile telephones. Think about many things. These things never come without a price. Only the fools can believe that there is free lunch. <clears throat> there is never a free lunch. And thus, people always sacrifice, but very few people sacrifice religiously, spiritually. One of the first in the country where I come from, we had one of the very first builders of aircraft, a man who in 1905 built the first aircraft that took off by itself. This man, who is one of the pioneers of aviation, Buya is his name, this guy, he built seven airplanes in his life. And he says a very amazing thing which only spiritual engineers can understand. He says, in an airplane, the primitive ones, but it's valid for these ones of today. In an airplane, he says, if you don't put soul, the airplane will not fly. That's as valid today as it was that time. All those geeks who lose their hair and spend years in front of the computer to design new cars, to design new airplanes, to design new computer software, they sacrifice, they put their soul. Rumi would say, why don't you give your soul to Allah? Allah is the only one in this universe who is worthy to give him your soul. It's a bad investment to give your soul to the god of the airplanes, to the airplane demon. People don't know and don't care. Most people think that that's the way it's supposed to be. And thus we invest soul, that sacrifice, that we have to give something to pay a price, always. There is no free lunch. And thus we get to the deeper understanding and I hope now you understand what is involved here. He says, the one who works, who acts for the sake of yagya, of sacrifice, for such a person, the whole action is entirely dissolved. Like there is no karma. There is no karma if you pray to God. What karma will there be from that? That's why in karma yoga, you never have to consecrate a consecration. You never have to consecrate a prayer. You never have to consecrate a blessing. 
because those things are already a consecration implicitly because that action which is sacrificed is consecrated by itself Krishna says the whole such action is dissolved there is no karma for that on the contrary if I am giving you an initiation in a mantra let's say I'm giving you the initiation in the Bija mantra of Manipura Chakra that's not necessarily in itself a spiritual thing you can take the Bija mantra of Manipura Chakra and work with it for 10 years and have a Manipura Chakra like Napoleon or like Alexander the Great and then become a great leader it's not necessarily a spiritual thing that's why when I give you an initiation on a mantra I consecrate it because I want to give it to you in such a way in which you will use it for your own spiritual development not for foolish collateral things it's okay if you use your Manipura Chakra to heal your liver or to get a little bit more courage or it's fine but primarily the meaning for which you are receiving from me let's say mantras is because you are in a spiritual school and you are developing towards a spiritual state of consciousness thus you can see that there is always always this principle of sacrifice it works on all the levels and now Krishna starts with a list of describing the sacrifice giving you inspiration examples of it which is amazing flabbergasting you can meditate on it again and again some requires enormous explanation and some but here it's very technical here is what he says in the shloka 24 after he said that he works for the sake of sacrifice the whole action is dissolved and then he says brahman is the act of offering act of offering translated by Swami Shivananda as oblation oblation means the thing which you throw in the fire the object of sacrifice what you sacrifice that's called oblation so he says Brahman is the act of oblation Brahman the oblation poured by Brahman into fire that is Brahman to Brahman alone must go who is fixed in Brahman through action. This shloka is a monument of monism, of non-dualistic philosophy. Basically, here he gives the context of thinking in the back of everything. Because he says, that's how you should think. Not that me, I put some butter in the fire and it goes to God. He says, I am God. The butter is God. The action of offering it is God. The fire is God. And the final destination is God as well. God offers God by God to God. There is only God. There is only one thing in this universe. Here called Brahman. Brahman is a word here. It's a, this is a word which is Vedantic. Vedantins in India love to use the word Brahman, others use other words. It is surprising that in Bhagavad Gita they use it because Krishna himself who says I am God, 
he is an incarnation of Vishnu. So he would have said Vishnu is the act of offering Vishnu the oblation poured by Vishnu into the fire. That is Vishnu, to Vishnu alone must he go is fixed in Vishnu through action. It's the same. You can use whatever word you use, God the Father, Allah, whatever word is comfortable for you, you can use it. But the meaning is what matters here. This shloka is taking us to the highest level. Who sacrifices for what? Abhinava Gupta, one of the greatest tantric masters of Indian history in Kashmir, he says, ultimately, if everything is Shiva, including I myself, then who worships and who is worshipped? What is the act of worship itself? He refers to puja. In the puja, which is the act of worship in India, making puja a ceremony, a puja is a sacrifice. It's the, this is the framework in which they do the sacrifice. Either they throw water or they use fire. Or, it's, a puja is an act of sacrifice like the Christian mass, like everything else, like burning lambs on the altar of God, and other, other any, everything is just a modified form of sacrifice. And therefore, Abhinava Gupta says, why would you worship Shiva? I am Shiva, the whole universe is Shiva, the flowers or the incense or whatever I want to give is Shiva, there is nothing in this universe which is not Shiva, my own devotion is Shiva, the act of offering is Shiva, so who worships and who is worshipped? This is the philosophy of monism. Join me in Kashmiri Shaivism workshops at some point, and that's where you will start seeing the dawn of monism, in, in, of non-dualism, in you, it's the same, monism, non-dualism, in your spiritual practice. Until then, this becomes a little bit incomprehensible because most people who would read or try to <coughs> act on such a thing, they will get blocked. If Shiva, I am Shiva and the worship is Shiva, then I don't need to do it because Shiva already knows that I worship him and then I stop doing any worship, which can be a very wise thing or it can be a very foolish thing depending on a lot of factors. And that is why the meaning of this is not that it should not happen. The meaning of it is to understand that there is no human necessity. Like if you give to God, let's say you are a monotheistic person who believes in a God, and you want to give God butter, and incense, and I don't know what, flowers. What need has God got for incense or butter or flowers because God already has all the incense and all the butter and all the flowers. God is the butter and the flowers and the incense. Then what need is it? It's like a hypocrisy. It's like a thunder hitting on the water. Zero effect. It's like there is no meaning to this. What is the meaning of this? And yet it is done this is an incorrect understanding. People subjected to such a statement which suddenly shines with non-duality, with monism, with Advaita, they usually misunderstand it because people are not so refined spiritually to understand it in the proper way. Non-dualism 
is one of the most demotivating factors in spiritual practice when people are ignorant and they understand it in a wrong way. That's why it has to be understood in the proper way. It doesn't mean that you don't do it anymore because God sacrificed God to God. Still, the flow is necessary. Water is everywhere. Water vaporizes to become clouds which are water vapors which rain and they become water again. Isn't that useless? Then let's stop the vaporization and the rain. It's useless. It's a useless agitation. Water should stop moving. But if water stops moving, then there is no life on earth. Life, water, has to move. That is why God has to sacrifice God to God. Although it sounds useless and absurd, it, it lacks utilitarianism, but actually it's very necessary. Krishna here, first of all, starts like in the next shlokas, he's going to give wonderful examples and inspiration, which most probably you are going to hear next Thursday now. But at this point, he starts with the highest point, and the highest point is the pure metaphysics of it. And the pure metaphysics of it is Brahman is the oblation. Brahman is the melted butter, the ghee that you offer. By Brahman is the oblation poured into the fire of Brahman. Brahman verily shall be reached by him who always sees Brahman in action. Like even when you do sacrifice, he says, you should not fall in the trap of seeing me and God. If you see that, you separate yourself. That's what they do in witchcraft. Me and the ancestors. Me and the asuras who give me power. Me and the devas who give me blessings. It's always me and them. It's duality. But he says when you sacrifice to God, it is time to go beyond duality. You should see first of all that the root of this sacrifice is in oneness. It's oneness and yet it's not useless. It is oneness, but as water on this planet is one, and yet it still it keeps vaporizing and raining again, exactly in the same way, although Brahman is one, Shiva is one, the cosmic consciousness is one, nevertheless it has to flow. The flow is necessary for the life of the universe. This is a very metaphysical thing, to understand why sacrifice, even to God, is necessary. Because God does not need the sacrifice. Any God that needs the sacrifice is a beggar, is a, is a merchant. You make a deal, I give you this, you give me that. With the divine consciousness this factor disappears. There is only, only the understanding of the fact that the will must turn. The wheel of Dharma, the order of the universe, must turn. It, keep, it has to keep turning. And that's why spiritual people never stop doing the sacrifice. It's true, for them the sacrifice is Kundalini rising, which is like a fire, the fire ceremony, but inside you, inside your body. The spiritual people do mantras, they do devotion, 
they do prayer, they do meditation, they do other and other things. Each one of them is like a ritual, but performed inside. It, it is internalization of external rituals. People who cannot do meditation, throw butter into fire. People who can meditate, they do directly the offering, the sacrifice, symbolically, not as butter anymore, inside, because the, the circle must go on for life to continue on earth. Meditate on this, there is a great understanding in this, and Krishna, as you would have expected it, starts with the highest example, with the ultimate thing, because now he goes into the big story of yagya, of sacrifice, which again is way, 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 way more than the literal fire sacrifice practiced in India, because everything in life itself is sacrificed. In the scriptures it is said that God sacrificed a part of himself, turning it into matter, so it became the manifestation, the universe. Even the universe and life exists through a constant sacrifice of the Divine Consciousness. If the Divine Consciousness would not sacrifice, the universe would not be created. Of course, it's not necessarily a painful sacrifice, because when you say sacrifice, it's like somebody bleeds, somebody dies, somebody is deprived. Take out of your mind this. Sacrifice can be blissful, happy, like when you love, when you rise Kundalini, when you do pranayama, it doesn't mean that you have to suffer. That is a dual thing. You can do Dhyana Bandha and convert, consecrate your sexual energy to the higher chakras. And for some people who are not spiritual, it's painful. It's painful to do Dhyana Bandha. While for one like Ramakrishna, it's blissful because you are sending energy to God. Your sexual and vital energy is turned back to its creator. What an act of love, what an act of surrender, what an act of generosity and offering back like a child. What can a child give to his parent? Only what he has, but what he has he got it from his parent because the child doesn't have things of his own. So the child goes and takes a piece of paper which belongs to his father and says, eh, for you, this is for you. But the child wants to give. We want to give to God our love. But where did we get that love from? From God, because love does not is not our property. And therefore the love which we received from our Creator, we are just giving it back. That's a sacrifice. There is nothing painful in it. Therefore, remember, do not, although the word sacrifice has this connotation, Try to understand sacrifice in a spiritual, sattvic, beautiful way. Spiritual people sacrifice constantly and spontaneously because like children, they always want to give something, whatever it is, a trinket, it doesn't matter. My little vitality, which means nothing in this great universe. My little love, which means nothing in this gigantic universe. And yet this little trinket, I want to give it to God with sparkling eyes and with hope in my eyes. I want to give it. That's love. Every little drop that vaporizes is to become rain and grace at some later time. And that is the deeper 
meaning of sacrifice. And the highest idea is that sacrifice is God. The giver of sacrifice is God and the receiver of sacrifice is God. So this is just a closed circle. It's not that somebody benefits. God cannot benefit from something which is part of himself. Thus, eliminate from your mind this bargain, merchant element that you are buying God with sacrifice. You can buy the devas, you can buy the asuras, you can buy the ancestors, but the fourth and highest level, the transcendent level, there you cannot buy anything because there is nothing to gain and nothing to lose. There is nothing to buy and nothing. That's why Jesus says people do the will of God, some of them because of fear, and those are the slaves of God, some of them for advantages, and those are the merchants of God, and the last and highest category, because of love, and those are the sons of God. Here, Krishna says, do sacrifice like a son of God, out of love. There is nothing to gain and nothing to lose, because God is everywhere anyway. Nothing and nobody gains anything ever. It's just the same bubble of God. Nothing comes in and nothing comes out of it because it is the totality. In this way, you cannot make sacrifice to God to obtain some benefit. That's a wrong thing. God, I give you, I donate $50 million to the Catholic Church if you let me live for another five years. It never works. That's why it never works. Because that is a sacrifice in which you try to buy God. And you already bought God. He's yours. Because you are God and God is you. And therefore, this is a total misunderstanding. The true spiritual sacrifice has to be done in a spirit in which everything is like a game. There is nothing to lose and nothing to gain. Everything is anyhow God. You are not giving to God anything. It's just a movement of energy. It's just a movement of spirit in this universe. Next time we are going to go deeper because Krishna gives wonderful examples of how to sacrifice. What is the sacrifice? Because that one is the right action which never produces karma. That's the point where, which he wants to make with this. Let us remain in silent meditation for 2-3 minutes to calm down and assimilate deeply the message from Krishna, the divine teachings of Krishna, and then we'll stop and part for tonight.